And we're going to continue in uh, Numbers, so I'm going to Numbers chapter 1. And we're going to actually read, uh, I won't read the whole of Numbers 1, 1 to 20. I'm going to read Numbers 1, 1 to 4, and then I'll go over to, to Numbers, Numbers 1, verse 46, then to Numbers 26, verses 1 and 2, and verse 51. So sorry about that. I'll just read Numbers chapter 1, 1 to 4. This is the very beginning of the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census, a count, of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Can I then flick on down to the verse 17? So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. So there's a great big count of all the, the fighting men taking place. We go over to verse 44 of chapter 1. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. We're going to go now to the very end of the, uh, the book, to, to chapter 26. In between this is 40 years. And so we're going to the end, 26 verse, uh, one and, verses 1 and 2 and verse uh, 51. Numbers 26, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 51. There's 40 years in between, roughly 40 years in between these two counts. After the plague, there'd been a very bad plague. The Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census, count, of all the congregation of Israel, from 20 years old and upward, by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. In verse 51... This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, we might draw encouragement and comfort, Father, from what we read here as we piece together these little, little chunks of history, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I think the book of Numbers is definitely a book for our times. It's Numbers is part of the, what we call the books of Moses, the books written by Moses, uh, the first five books of the Bible. The, the Hebrew title for Numbers, the Hebrews called it In the Wilderness. They, they named their Old Testament books by the first few words, In the Wilderness, which I think is a really a very, good, very good title because it covers those 40 years of Israel's wilderness wanderings after leaving Egypt and before entering the Promised Land. Got a, I think a, there's a uh, map there of how they wander around and up and down throughout the land, uh, part of their wilderness travels. The date of the book, roughly, the date of this incident, roughly 1500 BC. Now, Israel's wilderness experience is not just physical. They're circling around in the desert, but it's also spiritual because they often find themselves in a spiritual wilderness, cut off from the love of God because of their sin and rebellion. Now, what we call the big idea in this talk here would be this. That's sort of like the big idea encapsulates the whole sermon in one sentence. It would be this. Numbers teaches that God was faithful to his promise to raise up a nation of his own, Israel, his church nation, and give them a promised land. And it assures us that God will be faithful to his promise to the New Testament church to build us up and carry us through to the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So our first point this morning, point number one, is that numbers, numbers count. The events of the book of Numbers are a sandwich between what I call two bookends. Not bookends are those things, I think they still use them, on the shelf where you put them there and you put your books in between and they hold the books together. Two bookends, they hold the thing together. And these two bookends are two censuses or two counts which were ordered by God. One at the beginning of the book, the beginning of their 40 years wanderings. One at the end of the book, at the end of their 40 years wanderings just before entering the promised land. Now, why does God order two censuses? Well, because he, he wants us to see something. The first census back there in chapter 1 is taken just a couple of years after they've fled Egypt. They're still at Mount Sinai. They've just received the law of God. They're to count the, 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 the fighting men, uh, men 20 years old and older. I think there's a picture too of the sort of Mount Sinai area, a pretty rough-looking country where they were holding out there. Um, that's roughly what it looks like. Rough country, and they were there receiving the law of God, and they're about to move on again. The count does not include the, the tribe of Levi or Levi, because they will be not fighting men, but Israel's priests and Israel's teachers. The count totals 603,550 men of fighting age. That's, that's like book number one. Now, if we scroll forward that further 40 years, Israel at the last is about to enter Canaan. God orders the second census and the total is 601,730. I think there's a little slide there with those two numbers. The second count reveals just 1,800 fewer than when they started. Now, what are we meant to see? That, that Israel has shrunk a bit? No, no, we are, we are meant to, to, to think or to notice that, that to our great amazement, Israel is there at all. 
We admit that we're meant to stand in awe of God's faithfulness to his promise. Not only is Israel 40 years on still there, but it's about the same size. Now, over those 40 years, Israel has faced threat after threat, any of which could have wiped them out. God himself could be justified, actually, in wiping them out. But Israel is still there. And why? Because God had promised Abraham that he would be a father of a great nation. He promised them he would give them his own, their own land and that they would be a blessing to the world and, of course, they would be the kind of nursery through which Messiah would come into the earth. They would bring glimpses of heaven to the earth whilst they settled in this promised land which would be kind of a, or should have been, a little glimpse of heaven. So these two bookends show God's faithfulness to his great salvation plan, his power to carry it out. These numbers really count. God makes promises. He has the power to keep them. And this is the good part for us. He is willing to persevere even with broken and sometimes rebellious people. That should encourage us all because sometimes we're all broken and a little bit rebellious. Well, point two, we look at the books between the bookends. Now, the books between the bookends are the threats that Israel faces during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Having left Egypt via Mount Sinai, where they receive instructions on how to live as God's people, Israel heads north to the border of Canaan, the promised land. But we read some of the people, described as rabble or grumblers, begin whinging. Now, despite God feeding them manna from heaven. You know, this, this wafers and honey, which sounds, again, pretty good stuff. Uh, despite God looking after them, feeding them, providing for them, they long for the good old days of Egypt. When they ate, they say, meat and fish, cucumbers and melons, leeks and onion, garlic. See, their freedom, their, their adoption as God's family, their future as God's kingdom on earth, doesn't mean a thing. They're... Their slavery in Egypt, the genocide of their babies, doesn't mean a thing. They just want melons and garlic, which reminds us of how many people today live. Just give us a good meal and we're fine. There's more, more to life than that. So God is horrified by their, their unfaithfulness and their ingratitude. He, they, they cry out, give us meat. Well, he gives them meat. All these quail come down. But he withdraws his special protection. From them, He promised to protect them as long as they were faithful to him. They turn their back on him, they reject him, they complain against him, and he withdraws his hand of protection. And a very great plague strikes, we are told, and many die. This is not church growth, this is church shrinkage. The numbers are shrinking. Then Israel has this leadership crisis. Moses' sister and brother Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. They want to depose him and make themselves leaders. Never happens in churches today, thankfully. Back in those days, it happened occasionally, apparently. And they say, they say to him, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? No, he hadn't. No, not at all. And now God is angry with their presumption and their arrogance. Miriam, who seems to be the ringleader, is struck with leprosy. And, but Moses demonstrates the qualities which I think for which God chose him. 
He intercedes before God. She's been sinful, but he intercedes for her and asks God to forgive her. And God heals her. And, and Moses' leadership is confirmed. Another crisis passes. And Moses is displaying droplets of Christ-likeness. Well, Israel goes up to the land of Canaan, to the border. They send in 12 spies provide prior to invading. And what do they see? A wonderful place. A paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of them bring back a, a bad report. Rather than seeing the opportunities, rather than trusting God's promises to give them the land, they tremble in fear. They say, the people are giants. The cities have strong walls and the land swallows people. Not quite sure what that was like, but that sounds bad. Land swallowing you, but they're building up a very bad, very grim picture of this beautiful land. But one of the spies, Caleb, who's assisted and backed by a man called Joshua, one of the other spies, they bring back a glowing report. And of those 12 spies, only Caleb and Joshua lived to enter the land. The people of the land, the people of Israel believe this bad report and they say, oh, we are doomed. We wish we were back in Egypt again. And God's wrath is aroused because they're not trusting him. They have seen his great works in freeing them from Egypt, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the, the dealing with the, the Egyptians who chased them, water from the rock, manna from heaven. They'd seen all these things, yet they didn't trust him. Didn't trust God when it came to entering the land of Canaan. And God says to Moses, stand aside. I am going to disinherit this mob. I'll get rid of them and I'll start again with, with just you, Moses. And I'll make you into a great nation. It looks like the end for Israel. But Moses, showing these droplets of Christ-likeness, he intercedes and he, he begs God to persevere with Israel for his own namesake. And Moses says, and I'll just paraphrase, you don't want other nations saying that you couldn't pull this off. So please forgive them. So God relents and decrees that all, though that all fighting age men who are among the whinges, and that's most of them, will never enter the promised land. They will die during Israel's 40 years of wandering through the desert. There's plenty of desert there. That's possibly up to as many as 600,000 men who, who won't make it to the second census. They're leaving this great trail of bodies throughout the, the desert. And then God tells them, you're going to spend the next 40 years wandering the desert. Don't even think about now trying to enter Canaan. And so what do they do? The winders say, uh-oh. We've made a mistake. We, we, I mean, yeah, we were wrong. Let's go up there now and we'll, we'll take Canaan. They strap on their swords and they get their bows and arrows. And going against God's word again, they decide to attack the land of Canaan. And they're doomed by their disobedience. God says, don't go. They said, we'll go. And the Canaanites and the Malachites swarm out and they decimate them. There's a massive um, uh, killing of people. And Israel is facing disgrace and annihilation. Numbers are shrinking. And you've got to ask the question, will anybody be left to enter the land of Canaan? They're losing so many. Then the Levites rebel. They're backed by 250 tribal chiefs. And they say to Moses and Aaron, everybody in the congregation is holy, not just you. We too should be able to function as priests. 
But of course, God had specifically given the priesthood to Aaron and to his family. The Levites were, were the helpers, not the priest. So in this rebellion, the rebels are destroyed along with uh, 15,000 others who side with them. The church is not growing, it's shrinking. Then Israel loses, as we saw before, people through snakebite. They narrowly survive an occult attack by the king of Moab as they have this, um, this sorcerer for hire is, 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 is brought to curse them. They are very badly hit when the king of Moab corrupts Israel through sexual immorality. If uh, sorcerers for hire don't work, try the sexual immorality thing. And, and because of that weakness of those Israelite men who gave into that, that critical moral attack, 24,000 men die in a subsequent plague. And on and on it goes over 40 years. In summary, Israel is assaulted from within and from without. They disobey, they grieve God again and again. God removes his special protection from them. He exposes them to, to his discipline, attack from foreign armies, disease, wild creatures, all in the space of 40 years. They're tracked through the wilderness is just littered with Israelite bodies. Surely no nation could, could, could survive such a harrowing time. At the end of those 40 years, Israel should be just a, a shadow of its former self. If, if, if there at all, perhaps it could be even non-existent. But what do we find? When the second census is taken, Israel is about the same size as when it left Egypt. God has preserved them, keeping his word. Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God has promised. And in the wilderness, there's been a baby boom. Lots of young men between 20 years and what have you, another you know, 601,000 of them. So God keeps his word. He disciplines Israel for its faith, faithlessness, its rebellion, but he blesses it for its faithfulness and obedience. Israel has to survive and enter the promised land to provide these glimpses of heaven on earth <clears throat> and to be the entry point for Messiah Jesus. God has promised and he will do it. But what's that to do with us? It poses a question. As we look at the biblical theology, the flow-through of these doctrines through the Bible from, from front to back cover, does the New Testament repeat the same principle of God being faithful to his word and preserving his people, his church, through good times and bad? Well, point three, numbers count. But what are our numbers? Just as there are two bookends or two censuses to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, there are two bookends, I believe, to our era. Now, metaphorically, we also are in the wilderness. Now, just like Israel was not home until it entered the promised land, we're not home until we enter the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Our churches, you know, the church's kind of wilderness wanderings began back in Back at Pentecost in Acts 2. That's where the, the, the church becomes a great multinational worldwide thing sweeping the whole world. Just before Pentecost, we read in Acts 1.15, 
the company of Jesus' followers, which the church, numbered about 120. Now, I'm not saying that that was all the people following Jesus. I'm sure there were more than that. But it's a fairly small number overall who are following Christ at the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. A small number, 120. That's census number one. And then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches to that great crowd. 3,000 are converted. And a few days later, more thousands are converted and they take the gospel back to their homes all over the Mediterranean world, all over the world itself, and the word begins to spread. And so that's the first census, 120 or so. But then there's a second census, a census that comes at the end of the age, which Chris read for us in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The Apostle John describes it this way. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white clothes. So our era starts with 120 or so and ends up with more than can be counted. God has promised, you see. Matthew 16 verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell, that is death, shall not prevail against us. We cannot be killed off here on earth by death so that there are no Christians left. The true church will survive and it will grow. God has promised. Well, what are the books between our bookends? And by books I mean like in numbers, what are the events which threaten the church and its survival in our era? What are are they? I look at the COVID-19 pandemic. Nothing so devastating has struck the church since, I think, probably First and Second World War. Um, Terrible disruption in church life. We've closed down services. People have been scattered. Not only have good believers died, but church services have been disrupted. And some churches are just in disarray uh, as they emerge from, from COVID. I preach sometimes at the Sunshine Coast Chinese Church. So many of their folk have not come back to church since the, the COVID thing. I'm not quite sure why, but churches are hurting. And most churches have lost people who have either moved on somewhere else or they found that watching church at home is more suitable to them. So um, COVID has been a terrible disruptor. We'll recover, we'll heal, but it has knocked us around. Then there's persecution. Christians are still being persecuted and jailed and murdered by church haters like radical Islamists and totalitarian regimes. I wonder what's happening to the church in Ukraine today. I've no idea, but it's terrible. What's happening in the church in, uh, in Myanmar? You've got some pictures there of Myanmar somewhere. Uh, I've uh, done three trips to Myanmar, to Burma, in just recent years. Um, Burma is a uh, Buddhist country. There are churches in, in Yangon, the capital. But go up into Chin State, which is up on the uh, north, sort of western border, the border of India. Go up into Chin State and you enter this great Christian state. I tell you, there are, there are churches on every street corner. There are churches everywhere. They, they have a, apparently a habit of splitting up fairly regularly and starting new ones. But there, there are so many churches. And, and we went to a town called uh, Matupi, a town of, I think, probably about 30,000 people, including the, the districts. Sunday, the whole town shuts down. Everybody's going 
that way or this way to church. And they're white, white shirts. Everybody's on their bikes going to church. It's an amazing place and we've gone to, up there to minister to them just by doing Bible conferences to help them to understand the Bible better. Um, persecution has struck them. War. Just down the road from the town that we go to, Martupi, there's a town called Mindat. There's been a terrible fight there and many people killed. And these folk that we... We met up in um, Martipi. I think another slide or two on. I think that was in. That's actually in Yangon. These are the folk at our Bible conference in in uh, Martipi. These people, we're told, are mainly living out in the jungle. They've just run from. The, there's a military base in that town. They've scattered. Some of them have died. People have been killed. One pastor's wife rode her bicycle to India to try to be spared the fighting. India, we were told, is seven days that way if you walk. One day that way, if you ride a motorcycle on a push bike, probably a couple of days, she reached India and just fell dead from exhaustion. So those churches are, have been just decimated. Persecution everywhere. Of course, in the Western world, we have a different kind of persecution. We, we, we're marginalised, aren't we, in, in society today? They want to dismiss us as being irrelevant. We're ridiculed. In some cases, we're... We're even portrayed as being a dark force for evil. The Christian church, can you believe it? That's what they say. We might be economically squeezed. Revelation 13, 17 describes how those who are, who are Christ, that is marked, by, marked in Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit, not a literal mark, will not be able to buy and sell unless they receive the mark of Satan. So if you speak out against godlessness and evil in our times, the, the woke movement will make sure that you can't earn money. It's already happened. Then, of course, there's still liberalism, the watering down of God's word, so that the church looks like the world. And that continues to erode the place of the church in the world. And it steers us inexorably towards extinction. Once the church looks like the world, and some do, people will ask, well, why have a church? It's the same as them. So the church is dying. But still, greatest threats to growth of the church today come, I think, from within professing Christians who put pleasure and possessions and personal popularity and personal gratification before God. Churches are being devastated by immorality. Christians who think that sexual satisfaction comes from somewhere apart from marriage. Spiritual laziness, neglecting prayer and the personal reading of scripture, neglecting worship within their homes. And people are just dropping off sometimes, just plain discouraged. Churches are hard work. We've got to work at them. And it's easy to be discouraged, but it is the best we have. Then there's the failure of church leaders. This past year, again, I've seen many very, very prominent church leaders all over the world failing through immorality, corruption, bullying. And, of course, the failure of some churches to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Apostle Paul says what really counts is faith in Jesus expressing itself as love for others. So, conclusion. We have an imposing array of enemies against us. The church always has. But here's the good news. God has promised to grow 120 into a great multitude. God loves his church and he will see it through to completion. He makes the promises. He has the power to see it through. And we are to do our part by remaining steadfast and faithful to Christ and by teaching those around us to do the same. We will survive. We will flourish. God has promised, and his promises never fail.
Let's pray. Father, we repent of those times when we have felt discouraged and thinking of giving up, Lord God, because the way seems too hard. Father, everything you do for us has been so wonderful, Lord God. How could we ever give it up? And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us the strength to persevere. We believe that what you say is true, Father. You will see your church grow and flourish. You will see it through to completion in accordance with your great salvation plan. So grant us courage and strength, Father, we pray.